Open your Bibles um, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be looking this morning at just verses 9 through 11. Over the past uh, month, um, we've been working through a series, taking a break from the Gospel of John. We'll get back to that here in a little bit. But we've been working through a series that I've, I've, I've just kind of called this the glory of Christ. And I've been working uh, to show you the connection between Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, where he always lives to intercede for his church, and the issues and difficulties that we face as a modern society. More and more, um, we see Christians either, either throwing their hands up in frustration, what are you going to do? Or getting angry and defensive, often online. Or even embracing our current descent into this culture of death and destruction. But as those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ to be a people for his own possession, as those who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, we need to, we need to interact with these pressures differently than the world does. So I've tried to lay a foundation over the past few weeks uh, for how the church should respond to these current hot-button issues in the concrete footing of the ascension of Jesus Christ in glory. From there, from understanding that, we can look at the, at the sanctity of every human life. That every single man and woman was created in the image of God. And every single person, every single man and woman is worthy of love and care and dignity. And not only is every child created in the image of God from conception, but God's design for sex is that it take place within the covenant of marriage, which from creation itself, as we saw last week, Uh, God himself established the covenant of marriage to be between one man and one woman till death do they part. And he established marriage to be a reflection of Christ's gracious covenant with his church, with his own bride. That brings us to um, today, to our current cultural moment, which is the LGBTQ whirlwind that is happening all around us. But before we even take one step into this, I want to acknowledge something. So think of it like this. Last week when I preached on the the sanctity of marriage, I did so knowing full well that there are some in this church who have divorce in their backgrounds, either themselves or family, myself included. My parents are divorced. But that doesn't change the Bible's teaching, right? Right? And in fact, it makes our need for God's grace and our need for His mercy all the more obvious. Because the Bible is our highest authority in matters of faith and practice. We need to view these things from a biblical viewpoint. The same is true when we address the LGBTQ issues. We're talking about people. We're talking about people probably in your family. Many of us in this room today have friends or family members who have, who have come out as finding their identity in one of those letters, LGBTQ. So we're not talking about political issues, or at least not merely political issues. I'm not going to give you talking points for an online debate or anything like that. I'm gonna, we're going to talk about real people. 
real sin. Galatians chapter 6, that chapter begins with these words. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, as we have started these messages over the past couple of weeks, I've started by giving you a few statistics. Let me give you just a couple more. I'm going to start in, I'm going to start in what seems like a surprising place, probably. In 2016... There were 44,965 recorded suicides in the United States. 44,965. That's up from 42,773 in 2014. This is according to the, the CDC's National Center for Health St- Statistics. On average, the, US, the annual U.S. suicide rate increased 24% between 1999 and 2014. The rate went from 10.5 people, suicides per 100,000 people, to 13 suicides per 100,000 people. This is the highest recorded rate in 28 years. But they also write, the CDC also published, that because of the stigma surrounding suicide, they believe that it is generally underreported. People don't talk about it, they don't report it to the CDC, and even don't tell people um, often their accidental overdoses, for example, are counted um, or not counted. So it's underreported. In April of 2016, the CDC released some data showing that the the suicide rate in the United States had hit a 30-year high, and then later in June of 2018, just one year ago, They released some further data showing that the rate has continued to increase and it has increased in every U.S. state except Nevada since 1999. The rate of suicide has increased in every U.S. state except Nevada since 1999. Suicide is now the second leading cause of death amongst adolescents after accidents. I'm talking about suicide statistics because I want you to hear this next part. Studies have found that LGBTQ youth attempt suicide more than three times more frequently than straight youth do. A Canadian study actually estimated that the risk of suicide among LGBTQ youth is actually 14 times higher than for heterosexual youth. Teenagers, 15 to 19. But then, of transgender people, between 30 and 45% of all transgender people report having attempted suicide. That's one-third to almost one-half of all transgender people have attempted, reported attempted suicide. The reason I went with suicide rates is because I believe that we as a church need to be aware of the pain that this sin is causing. I think we need to be aware of the pain that it is causing and be reminded of the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as you turn on the news, you're likely not to see these kinds of statistics. Or conservative Christians might be blamed for them. That is actually happening um, 
in California right now, um, the legislator is passing some laws. We need to remember that increasingly, this is becoming a morality versus morality issue. This is a biblical morality versus worldly morality. So LGBTQ has gone mainstream and their own, with their own morality and mainstream culture, including many churches and denominations, have embraced LGBTQ as an alternative moral lifestyle. Moral. And within this discussion, uncertainty, inflammatory speech, anger and bitterness, they're all, it's all over the place in this discussion. Even amongst Christians within the broader church conversation out there. The church is struggling with how to respond here, and we need a reminder of biblical truth. We Christians need to be reminded of our mandate to love our enemies. We need to be reminded to show grace to sinners and to preach the gospel to them with love and compassion. See, in the church, in the gospel, we have the antidote for the deepest hurts, the deepest longings of the human heart, whatever they may be. So here's the question that we have to wrestle with. How should we, as God's people, as the church, how should we respond to those who struggle with or even embrace the LGBTQ lifestyle? So as I said, this will likely be personal for us, and so uh, don't be mistaken. Don't say to yourself, surely none of us would struggle with this, because I can assure you that there are people here today people who are a part of this church who have been personally affected by this in one way or another. As Christians, we need to understand that those who struggle with or are even even captured by sexual sin, everything from lust to pornography to fornication to adultery to homosexuality to gender confusion, they're always among the brokenhearted. Whether it will be recognized or admitted, Emptiness and despair are the companions of many within this realm. And Jesus was sent to bring good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted. The irony is that many within the LGBTQ community um, have said uh, that it is, um, well, it is one of the fastest growing people groups in history. And they have said that within this community, they have found friendship. They have found support and encouragement and solace and a, and a real community that the, uh, among their own that they could not find anywhere else. They've taken comfort in others who have understood their struggles, understood their plight, their past rocky and, and painful relationships. They've understood their current stresses with family members, sometimes even with churches. They've created for themselves and their own assembly that has the outcome of promoting open rebellion toward God. But it feels loving and accepting. And so how should we respond? Sometimes the church responds with anger. Sometimes the church responds with affirmation or just ignoring all of it. But I believe one of our first responses should be, should be grief. Grief. We should be grieved that our friends and family believe the world's lies about love. We should be grieved that those who are uh, we should be grieved at those who are causing these little ones to go astray. 
We should be grieved at those in outright rebellion against God. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Both Matthew and Luke record him looking at the city and weeping, lamenting. He wept over those who hated him. He wept over those who mistreated him and rejected him and would very soon from the time of his weeping put him on a cross. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus weeps for Jerusalem. Can we look at those whom we love and yet are caught in sexual sin? Can we look at them with compassion for their souls and grief over their rebellion? Our goal as Christ's church is not that those who would identify as LGBTQ, it's not, our goal is not that they would just stop, that they would just become straight and that America would get back to you know, Mayberry. That's not our goal. Our goal is that we as the church of Jesus Christ would shine the light of the gospel into the darkness. Our goal is that sinners would repent and believe for this is the power of God for salvation. For we are not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so as we hold fast to that confession, we need to look at the scriptures for our assurance that, uh, that we can only find in the gospel. The assurance that we can only find in the gospel. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6 I'm just going to read verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Lord, I pray that you would give us what we need today from your word. That we can see your grace and your mercy and your love towards sinners. Of which I am the chief. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as we pick up this letter, 1 Corinthians... We have to understand why Paul lays out this list here of the types of sinners who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why does he put this here? Why does he put it right here in the middle of chapter 6? Someday, I plan, someday, to go through 1 Corinthians to preach through this book. But for now, I want to give you just a, just a brief bit of background. So after Paul's customary greeting in chapter 1, the first several verses, he writes, th- he writes this, really kind of, I think it's verse 11 of the first chapter. This is why he's writing. He says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And then he spends a few chapters building his case on the authority of the gospel, building his case even on his own authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he finally gets to the issues which the church is divided and quarreling over, really in chapter 5. 
And in chapter 5, we see a church member is living in open sexual sin. And they seem to be okay with it. He's confronting the church about this. But then he brings up in chapter 6 the problem of Christians suing one another in open court, in, in the secular courts. And that is immediately, when he lists that in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and then immediately after that we read this passage, which is followed by more confrontation and instruction concerning sexual immorality and then, and then marriage through chapter 7. It's almost as if the lawsuit passage of 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8, it's almost like it doesn't quite fit unless it's related to their sexual sin. It's possible that Paul simply kind of goes off on a brief tangent. We all can do that, and Paul does it as much as anybody. So whatever the connection between the immorality and the legal grievances that they had with one another... The link that I want to point out to you this morning is between verse 8 and the very beginning of verse 9. So, so just look up at verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The word that the, the ESV, the English Standard Version that I use, the word that it translates unrighteous. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That can be translated wrongdoers. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? The reason it doesn't translate it there is because we all know that Christians can be wrongdoers at times. But, but Christians are made righteous in Christ. So this is really talking about unrighteous, those who are not believers. But he's just accused them in verse 8 of wronging their own brothers. Look at verse 8 again. But you, wrong, you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. They are wronging their, the brethren is what that means. They're wronging fellow church members. And habitual wrongdoers, he says in verse 9, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's telling them that they look just like the world. You look just like the world. You're doing the same thing. You're doing worldly things. But the church is not supposed to look just like the world. Christians are not supposed to look just like the world. And the point here for us to remember that Paul is trying to, what he's trying to do is tie together the, the sin of Christian brothers suing one another in a, sexual, in, a, in, a, in a secular court with this list of sexual sins. And in doing this, Paul is elevating God's standard of righteousness beyond what we usually think. It is easy for us to look at this list of sin and say, yeah, that's not me. But we have to tie it back to verse 8. In fact, God's standard of righteousness that he is laying out here, that Paul is explaining, his standard of righteousness is actually himself. It's actually Jesus Acts 17, verses 30 and 31 says this, that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We are called by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 to be perfect, holy, as the Father is holy. We're called to follow every jot and tittle of the law, even better than the Pharisees did, he says. Not just in our actions, but even in our minds. Otherwise, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, my guess is that most of us, 
Most of us know what an inheritance is. Um, And so receiving an inheritance in the kingdom of God, it it means a portion, an allotment, a, a place in God's eternal kingdom. It means to be saved. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that in Christ we have obtained an inheritance and we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit until we acquire possession of that inheritance, until we are in heaven with Christ. But then Paul doubles down here and he says, do not be deceived. The world is going to try and confuse you. The world is going to try and deceive you. Satan is going to lie to you. But remember what Jesus said of the devil in John chapter 8? He said in, in John eight forty four, he said that the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar, a, a liar and the father of lies. Do not be deceived, Paul says. The question, think of this for a moment, you know this, the question, am I gay? That question is being provoked in our children at an earlier and earlier age. Um, The lies of gender fluidity, the lies of sexual orientation are being dumped into our culture from every direction. The deception sounds like this. You're born this way. God made you like this. Why would God create you like this? If he didn't want you to be like this. Love is love. God loves you just the way you are. Paul says, do not be deceived. As Christians, do not be deceived. The world will will mock us for holding fast to our confession. The world will belittle us. They will attack us. But don't fall for the deceiver's tactics. Don't believe the lies. Hold fast to your confession. Paul states this list here very clearly. But before we read this again, I want to emphasize, I want to understand that this is about identity as opposed to, uh, to actions or even thoughts. This is about people who make a habit of these things without any sense of remorse, without any sense of, of repentance. Even in many cases, increasingly finding their identity in these things. I'll give you an example from this list or maybe an illustration. One of the sins listed here are greedy, the greedy. Those who are greedy or or covetous, they love money. Often this is done in secret. They quietly look for opportunities to increase their wealth, often at the expense of others. And that greed, that covetousness takes root in the heart long before it is acted upon. Look at this list of unrighteousness here in verses 9 and 10 again. Pick it up in the middle, kind of middle of verse 9. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We could group these sins into a, in a couple different categories, maybe, maybe three or four categories. First uh, is sexual unholiness. We'll come back to that. Then there's idolatry. And then really uh, selfishness or pridefulness. The prideful are the, are the thieves, the, the, the greedy, the swindlers. You can see their selfishness. You can see how, they could be, how these sins are connected to the love of money. 
But I, I put in the same category the drunkards and the revilers, the, the partiers and the brawlers. All of these are people who are just, they're out for a good time. They're out to please themselves. They're out for um, selfishness, prideful reasons. Paul mentioned idolaters, kind of the second one listed there. Um, In the city of Corinth, idolatry was explicit and overt. There were Greek temples uh, and a whole pantheon of Greek gods that were worshipped, actively worshipped. In today's society, this idolatry is a little more covert and implicit, although it's still pretty obvious. Our temples are not quite so glaring, but they're still there. Our gods, as Paul says, are our bellies. Our gods are our appetites for all kinds of sins and pleasures. But our society is no less idolatrous than it was in ancient days. But the other category is sexual unholiness, sexual sin. And Paul actually lists, there's actually four sins in this category. And I like the older versions in this verse because the the words that they use are words we don't hear very often anymore. So where it says in the ESV, sexually immoral, the older word is fornicator. That's what that means. This is explicitly those who are engaged in sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. I don't often tell you Greek words behind the English translation, um, but in this case it's actually going to help. The Greek word there is pornos, P-O-R-N-O-S. That's what that word is. The second sexual sin that Paul lists is the adulterer, and I think we know what that is. Um, I want to go right to the third and fourth because the ESV simply says men who practice homosexuality. And that's true, but it's even more than that. See, there's actually two words there. There's two words that Paul wrote down. One is sometimes translated effeminate, and the other homosexual, or literally abusers of themselves with other men, is actually how it's translated. Now, I'm I'm not going to go any further into the details here because you get the picture. But I do want to mention that the word effeminate has nothing to do with what kind of work they do or whether or not they eat steak with their hands. It literally means soft. The idea is that this person's character is ladylike. He's fragile. This includes the T in the LGBTQ. There's a movement out there within, I guess, progressive Christianity, if you want to call it that, to say that this phrase, men who practice homosexuality, that it doesn't really mean that. That it was, it was speaking to a specific cultural issue in Corinth where older men would take advantage of younger boys. But do not be deceived. They're twisting the plain meanings of these words into meanings they do not have. They're teaching a different doctrine when they say that. This means what it says. And 2 Timothy chapter 3 even addresses people who do these things. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. 
It's talking specifically about false teachers. Do not be deceived. So there are two types of people that we're working to address here this morning. This is where I want to be, want to be clear. There are those who are working hard to push the LGBTQ agenda. There are those that are working hard to push that agenda. They are enemies of God. The Bible would call them enemies. But then there are those who are, because of their sinful nature, they're falling for the lies of those who push the LGBTQ agenda. And they are being led astray. Eventually they become the other group if if God doesn't step in and save them. As a church, as Christians, we need to hold fast our confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and that by believing in him you may have life in his name. We need to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, including this passage, that the one who practices these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I also need to point out that, that Paul, that, that the scriptures here, they're not singling out LGBTQ image bearers. See, the truth is that apart from Christ, there are many even in this room who would fall under some of these other categories. Any of these categories. And if you're categorized by any of these iniquities, and this is just a sampling. Remember, he's trying to get their attention. He's trying to say, you look just like the world. When you sue one another, you look just like this list of sinners. He's trying to get their attention. If you're categorized by any of these things, Paul says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's Paul's nice way of saying you're not saved. Martin Luther's first thesis, the first of 95, was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so before our own pride sits in, before we can stand up and say, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I thank you that I'm not like this sinner. Before we do that, Paul hits us here with a, with a one-two punch. He says, and, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. That's an incredible statement. Paul's talking to a church. He's talking to church members. Paul's talking to Corinthian Christians. He's writing, as it says at the very beginning of the book, he's writing to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon our, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, us, both their Lord and ours. He's writing to those who are called saints, who were once called adulterers and fornicators and idolaters and effeminate and homosexuals. And he assures them... He assures them as he's writing to these saints who were, such were some of you. He assures them grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I give thanks to my God 
always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, he says to these same people, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And such were some of you. As you are repulsed by another person's depravity, and no doubt you are, consider this truth. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When you see the, the world or your family, or your friends, or your co-workers, the people close to you, when you see them doing worldly things, whether it's organizing and marching in pride parades, or quietly supporting, or being involved with, or struggling with these things, when you see the world doing worldly things, remember this truth. Paul says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. A spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. When you see people you love flagrantly rebelling against God's perfect design for their sexuality or struggling with these sins, and and the world encourages their rebellion. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verses 20 to 23, for when you were slaves of sin, you're free in regards to righteousness. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't gloat. Weep. Weep for them. And remember, as such were some of you, And see here, Paul lays on us three buts. There are three buts in verse 11. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. This is the free gift of God. This is the message that we proclaim. You were washed. You were made clean. You were born again, starting as a new creation without the stain of sin. 
Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, he said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the truth of Titus 3. Titus 3, verses 3 to 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When you trusted in Christ, when you trusted in Christ, you were washed with the precious blood of Christ. You were purified and made clean. And such were some of you, but you were washed. And you were sanctified, he says. Sanctified here, it's really kind of the the amplified version of being washed. It it means that you you uh, you are now taken with new behavior. You have a new heart. It is pumping new life through your veins. Sin has lost all domination and control over you. That doesn't mean that you have successfully prayed the gay away. Sin, many sins, very well could be a lifelong struggle with mortifying, with putting to death the flesh. But what it does mean is this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean you stop struggling with lust. That doesn't mean you stop struggling with idolatry or greed. It means that there is now therefore no condemnation Being sanctified also means, right along with that, that you are set apart. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then the third, but, and such were some of you, but you were justified. God has declared you innocent of sin because Christ took upon God's wrath upon himself. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the truth that we so eagerly want those trapped in this sin to know. The gift of God's grace. Protesting won't convince them. Sharing Facebook posts won't convince them. Yes, we must speak the truth. We must do so in love, with compassion for their souls. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray together. Father, these are hard things. It is my prayer that we would remember that we stood condemned. It is my prayer that we would look upon those who are struggling with sin, with compassion, that we might, in a spirit of gentleness, bring them to Christ. Explain the gospel to them that they might believe. Lord, we want to stand firm against your enemies, stand firm for the truth. Help us to do so. Help us to do so in a way that loves our enemies. Help us to do so in a way that we pray for those who persecute us. Father, we think of those in the crowds, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the Sanhedrin, yelling, crucify him. And then later, in Acts chapter 6 and 7, almost a side note that many of the priests believed. Because this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord, they were convicted, but they trusted in you. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom, compassion, love, that we might speak the truth and do so in love. We pray these things in Jesus' name.